Welcome to episode 24 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast, the dance of sensuality and spirituality, a conversation with Tamara Powell. Before we begin today, we want to encourage you to stay tuned to the end of the episode where we're going to be talking about Medify, a self-awareness app that helps you to tune in and be your best self. Medify is available for a free download on both Apple and Android devices, and we'll tell you a little bit more about why we love it just so much. And also, for those therapists that are in our listening community, we have a special invitation for you. This August 13th to 16th at Menla Mountain in the Catskills, we are going to be hosting an amazing retreat called Revision, and we want to tell you a little bit more about it and invite you to come join us. And now, the show. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is the practice of being seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. One more thing before we get started today. We had some technical difficulties with this interview, and you may notice that Marisa's voice sounds a little bit distant. That said, The content of this conversation was too good for us not to share with you as it is. So sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy. Today we are super excited to have Tamara Powell with us. Tamara is a licensed therapist, university psychology instructor, and spiritual empowerment coach who believes that life should be lived as a journey that is anything but ordinary. She opened Aria Therapy Services as a way to provide holistic health and healing to a global market. With specialties in gender, sexual, erotic, and relational diversity, Tamara is passionate about holding sacred space for the self-identified misfits and mystics of the world, the healers, the visionaries, and the creatives. More recently, she launched the Tales from a Trapezoid community with a goal of pushing the envelope around the more raw and edgier side of life, dedicated to those who may often feel like a trapezoid in a world full of circles. And Tam also has her own podcast, Undressing the Spirit, a weekly exploration of our collective search for passion and purpose. Welcome, Tam. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to have you with us. You know, as Marisa was reading your bio, I wanted to know more about these mystics and mystics that you work with. Yes. So I think as with most niches, niches, I don't know how we if we want to French that up. <laughs> it, it often comes from our own journeys and stories, right? And I think even as a young munchkin, I was a natural mystic. And I just, for me, that meant that I always saw the the magic in life. I always felt a spiritual connection even before I knew what spirituality is. And throughout 
my journey into becoming a therapist and a coach, I noticed there was a lot of other women and men, certainly, who felt that same way and did not have outlets for that, especially pluralistic outlets, because that's my favorite side of things. Oh, I love that. You know, and I'm, I'm also loving the fact that you went there and that you said that the stuff comes from your own journey. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, and I totally believe that for so many healing professionals, our journeys inform the work we do. Absolutely. And I, and I understand why egos don't want to bring it there. There's that stigma around the wounded healer archetype in counseling. But I think we miss the empowerment side of that, because how can you learn from someone who hasn't walked there before you? Mm-hmm. That, that's echoing on, on the tales of uh, Terry Real, who said something very, very similar. Perfect. Spirit synchronous <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I trust you because I know you've been there. Yeah. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. Exactly. That when, when therapists don't embrace that moment, that they're missing, they're missing that magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, magic. I feel like we're going to say that word a lot in this conversation. And would you give us your working definition of magic and how you see that come through your daily life? That with a K? <laughs> it might be now. Let's crunch that, that up too. That's <laughs> I was going to say, I've never thought about my working definition of that, so forgive the rawness of it, but it's to me that transcendent quality, that space that happens beyond what we can naturally put words to easily. So when I think of you know, mysticism and magic, it's that transcendental quality that you know, leaves us breathless, those peak moments, the flow that I feel like all of humanity is searching for. And when we get still, when we get mindful, when we slow down and pay attention, it's present in every single moment. And to me, that's what adds the extra richness to life. Yes. That, that just felt sensual. It does. Uh, everything's sensual with me. It's not the job hazard. <laughs> I think that's a piece of the magic. One of the things that I notice so often in my work is that when people get stuck, slowing down and coming back to the senses is the way to wake back up and, and come in in a playful, curious way that doesn't necessarily overwhelm. Beautiful. Yes, because to me, sensuality isn't always erotic. Like you said, it's about right. the, the five senses, or in my case, the sixth sense, too, <laughs> that, <laughs> that uh, we miss out on when we're trying to divorce one piece of it or another. And taking it towards the erotic, to me, that's important, too, because you cannot separate your spirituality from your sexuality and vice versa. So, Yeah, so take us there with that. Let's yeah, let's, go, let's go deeper. Too. We're going to just do all the words first, and then we'll start weaving them together, I think, as this conversation goes on. I love it. So to me, sensuality is a key component as to what makes life so juicy and magical. And a lot of my clients were coming to me with anything from anxiety, depression, you know, the standard therapy gamut. And what I noticed very quickly on is that their approach to it was so logical, so in their head, so cognitive that they were missing the emotional component that comes from sensuality. And so when you think about, like my conversation with you ladies already is lighting up dopamine in my brain. Like that's sensuality right there. Right, right there. And my cup of coffee this morning outside of my back porch, that was sensual. 
And even just, you know, holding my munchkin's hand and watching movies with them can be sensual. Um, That piece has been really profound. In fact, working within that sensual modality has, in my practice, cured things like vaginismus. And I mean cured, like women who could not even insert a tampon are now able to have penetrative sex and enjoy it. So I know I just rushed in it head I love first. that you okay. rushed into it. Let's okay. just go there. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's like open up our own curiosity and open up what you mean by cured. Like I, I get what you're saying from point A to point B, but bring mm-hmm. us in the middle. Show us the process. Cured. So for me, that means like not coming back. The best therapy to me is the one where you empower your client to be able to do the work without you, right? So it does not mean that she might not have a moment of wanting to pull away from her partner or being afraid, the anxious chatter in the mind that what if this comes back? But at this point, she's learned how to sit with that distress tolerance and to go within and allow it to be an invitation into deeper exploration, both literally and energetically. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, we're playing with words and and the word invitation just kind of popped out at me Mm -hmm. there too. I often think so much about like invitations and receptivity when I think about relationships. Yes. It's that back and forth play. I roll you the ball, you roll it back. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's the dance. It's the, it's the way we invite others in the way we, we receive them. Um, it's sex play, but it's also just, it, it's human connection and we can put up walls and we can, we cannot receive somebody. We can not invite them. And those are the things that often create the dysfunction, create the blocks. Yes. So one of my specialties is working with women who have come from very conservative worldviews, not the happy tales of childhood, but the spiritual abuse spectrum. And I don't have stats on this because there's not enough research yet. But I will tell you, hands down, the women that come from these very rigid, dogmatic systems where they're not just a, again, happy worldview, but taking it past that to where their uh, critical thinking skills are curtailed. Um, They have the highest rates of vaginismus and dyspareunia and other anxiety disorders that I've ever seen. And it's because they have been cut off from that invitation into the dance. Wow. You know, I think in so many ways, I maybe expect you to go towards shame or some of those words we hear so often, but cut off from the invitation to the dance. Right. Their worldview is literally handed to them. There's no choice in it. But I just want you to own the brilliance of that term right there. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how in this invitation between the three of us right now, it's... I'm seeing the whole mirror of words being reflected back at you. I don't even realize what I say sometimes until I hear it said back to me. And then I'm like, ooh, that is good. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm thinking about this cutoff from the invitation to the dance and just kind of feeling those words, sensing those words, sitting sitting with how they, they're resonating on on me mm-hmm. and what they mean to me. And and they're they're interesting, you know, like I almost want to hear myself and hear you say them a few more times just to really experience those words. Right. So for me yesterday, I actually had a profound shift with that, not even realizing that that's what it was. 
um, having a almost a out of body experience, you know, where you're spectating the human psyche yeah. is fascinating for that, where you can notice yourself noticing things, metacognition. It's such a mind trip <laughs> at times. <laughs> but I was in Walmart, um, and I had, ironically, your podcast in my left ear, uh, shopping and picking up things for my office before I walked in. And I was purposefully looking at everyone to see who would look back. There was this invitation, um, not in some like skeevy way, but just I wanted to soak into the moment and notice things around me. And it was cool to see a lot of people, they would look back. And if I offered a smile, then they would smile back. And so there was an invitation to that dance right there in that moment that I could have just as easily gone on by, just been listening to your podcast, staring at my products and... I don't know, missed out on some cool, connectful moments right there. I love that. Now, the cutoff, though, mm-hmm. that's, that's something different because you're, sure. you're sharing that these women that you work with, they're cut off from a place of being taught to be. Right. Right. So a lot of these women I've noticed they have, it does not occur to them that cutoff has been so severe that it doesn't occur to them that they're allowed to exercise an invitation themselves. They don't get to invite themselves into a dance of any kind. Um, or I should say no matter the kind. And then they thus cannot offer an invitation to their partners or intended connectful places. How much does this parallel with and dance with um, just things like shame and trauma and uh, dissociation. You know, like how, how much are those things that are kind of dancing along with these this being cut off from the invitation? You can't have one without the other there either right. because shame isolates mm-hmm. um, and it just becomes this vicious cycle. I feel shame so that I isolate further. And as I isolate further, I experience more shame. So the shame is in some ways what you're describing, this this being taught to be cut off. It it is a form of shame. It's the shame is kind of the teaching tool. Absolutely. And it's so insidious, right? Because a lot of these women, they feel shame around just experiencing normal emotions. And that's the correlation to the vaginismus piece later on. If a woman cannot give herself an invitation to explore her own anger or sadness or pride, you should see the amount of women who don't have an okayness with pride, because they have had some religious dogma tell them that that's not okay. It's not okay. If you're being prideful, it's like as as if you were worshiping Satan himself. Um, it's too so, grandiose. Mm-hmm. They never allow themselves a moment of accomplishment. And so mm-hmm. sometimes our work just begins with an invitation to notice what they're feeling. Things that, you know, you would hope they had gotten in kindergarten, but they didn't. I mean, we talk a lot about playing small versus playing big. And this just seems to be putting that story in a very... Interesting light and interesting frame mm-hmm. at such a fundamental level. You know, many of us walk around with that that it, 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 in different shadows, but you're seeing it as such a in such bold relief. Yes. Well, the, yeah, those shadows they 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 go to deeper and deeper levels, right? The the mm-hmm. darker the shadows get, the the more murky they are, the more they affect all of our senses in all of the ways. And the harder it is, we'd like to penetrate. Penetrate. I was just going to say that. Yeah. And that's, this is why language is 
everything. Because think about it, a girl who grows up um, being told that, you know, nice girls, spiritual girls, Christian girls, whatever the label before girls comes in, do not express anger, do not express sadness, do not express pride. You're not allowed to feel desire in any way whatsoever. And then on her wedding day, she's told to perform. She's told to now, okay, now we're going to open the floodgates, but maybe not too much. You know, you can't like overly want it. It depends upon her denomination, right? But now you're allowed to give yourself to your husband. You're allowed to join the dance and she doesn't know how. And now that she doesn't know how that shame comes around full circle because now her muscles clench up and she can't be penetrated. She's not able to go into the dance. And now she feels shame about that. So now that she can't even take pride in what she's supposed to do. Mm. And, and it, it, it leans into that patriarchal worldview. Mm-hmm. Are you laughing? Cause you were going to go there. Reading, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it leans into that patriarchal worldview where he ends up having more dominion over her. He ends up having power over her because that's, that's yes. what she knows. Yes. He or whomever. Yeah. Right. It's disempowering on all levels because now she's waiting for someone else to do it for her again. So she's swapped out her um, power that was placed in her parents, likely her father's in her church's hands to tell her what to do. And now she's in this place of submission to her husband and not in a good way. It's not a dance. Mm-mm. And it's not a place where she's receiving pleasure. Right. So I would love to know where you see these echoes in the lives of women who weren't necessarily raised in what seem like overtly patriarchal traditions, whether it was more liberal churches or it was not being Christian at all. Where else are you seeing this? Well, I think one of the key words there, too, is overt. Yes. Exactly. Yes. I see it overtly in women who get caught up in codependency, women who will not enjoy that empowerment of an internal locus of control. And so she places everything outside of herself because again, there's that cutoff from that invitation to dance. And so she'll stay in relationships or business arrangements um, way, way longer than she should. Like misguided loyalty at certain points. Absolutely. And this goes to the far end of the spectrum, too. I know we're going to be stepping on toes with this podcast, but if we go to the other end of things, like, think, for example, think getting back to the patriarchy, virginity in, in, in a abstinence from a cut-off, like, prudish form of worldview is really just the flip side to hedonism without control either, where the focus is on all pleasure without responsibility. And so I see this even in my polyamorous couples that on the surface level, we'd all be praising for how enlightened they are, how non-jealous they are, supposedly (laughs) at times, but their issues at the core can often be this exact same thing. They're not comfortable with that invitation to the dance. So I I see this in a myriad of ways that certainly don't just start out in spiritual abuse. And then on the other side of it, where, where do you find yourself in here? Where, where has your journey begun and where are you now? Oh, good question. So I did not necessarily grow up under rigid religious abuse the way that I see in some of my clients. However, I did grow up in a very patriarchal, um, conservative Christian worldview. And so there there are touches, there are nuances of, I know what it's like to be taught that you are the feminine 
uh, and thus the weaker <laughs> vessel, which is, was supposedly something that I was supposed to take pride in this gender role. And it never really clicked with me. I was always too much for some of the denominations. We grew up around the world. My father was military. And then I was always not enough for others. And that caused me to constantly be searching for what's the right amount of something. What's the right amount of being open to that dance? You know, those, those two phrases, the too much and the not enough, they are, they are kind of the everything of what my, my clients come to me for. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that describes both sides of the couples that I see. One of them feels like they're too much. One of them feels like they're not enough. And that's always the dance that they're stuck in. Yes. And I saw that mirror out in both of my marriages. I still feel a sense of shame, if I'm honest, for having been married not once, but twice um, and having left those marriages. And I can see the that not being able to fully own my own worldview before moving into that first marriage played a huge part. And certainly to the stigma now of, is this even okay? <laughs> um so there are certainly ghosts of Christmas past lingering at times, if I'm not careful. Yeah. Well, I think those ghosts always linger. They, they linger there to remind us and to, to keep us woke. Right. So in my first marriage, I certainly experienced that not enough. I married a man who later was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And just verbal abuse, emotional abuse was never enough. Was once yelled at because there was dust in a closet. And I was like, pregnant with our first child, just ridiculousness. And because you, it's kind of like a frog being slowly boiled. I didn't realize how ridiculous it was until way later, um, after some therapy and EMDR. And then in my second marriage, the pendulum swung way too far to the opposite towards security only. And suddenly I was way too much. My sensuality was too much. And I struggled with what a lot of uh, couples do with like sexual anorexia, and so I've seen both sides of the coin and how damaging that can be to a woman's psyche or men, men too. Yeah. That, that place within a woman's psyche, within a man's psyche, that oh, I want to, I just want to acknowledge that place. I don't really have words for it. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. I'm feeling what you're saying. I, I can't give you the words either. I'm seeing it kind of emerge from you around you. Yeah. I think this is where, where sensuality kind of, you know, it, it loses words. It, yes. it goes into this place where, where things become felt experiences mm -hmm. and those experiences become information that we can move forward with that can reshape the way we live and, and feel into our lives. Yes. And it's a place where there's no really space for words, that words can't embody the things we feel. Which takes me back to the mystical path. That's the whole point is being able to use language either allegorically or in poetry. If you look even at the Christian Bible alone, you see author after author all attempting to describe this experience, an event with the divine in a way that made sense to them. Words always fail, but at the same time, it's the best thing that we have to be able to offer it to someone else and give them that invitation to come dance in that space as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you know me enough to know how much I appreciate that discussion of the divine, so I kind of regret that my first thought is to go here. But there's also that element of marketing and yes. knowing that in order to invite someone in <laughs> to participate in Preach. whether it's 
to come into your spiritual work, to come to your next circle, to come to your mm-hmm. office for therapy or for whatever healing it is you provide, there's that need to invite them, to invite them <laughs> and to do that alchemy that says, I'm going to take the unspeakable, the ineffable, the ineffable, the, the, the stuff that's the fairy dust on my fingers that, you know, I just keep rubbing my hands together, trying to show you what I want to do and then type that into words. I mean, I do it every day, and sometimes I wonder why I'm so crazy as to keep trying. (laughs) But because we're human and we need to keep relying on those words, and we're trying to build community and invite people to join us in these spaces that can and will bring them beyond words. And so let's go into this place of story, because this is what the mystical passes down. This is what's written in all of those texts. Mm -hmm. These are stories in which we try to hold something of that relationship with the divine, with, with this otherworldliness. Yes. Right. And, and in our own work and in, in our livelihoods and, and our life missions and all of those things, what we're trying to achieve all of us isn't so different. It's the exact same. It really is. Look, learning as a therapist and neuroscience geek, realizing that what every single worldview and culture on the planet is trying to do is to experience that sense of connection while still at the same time experiencing that sense of individuation and that beautiful tension between the two. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all about belonging. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, and this is interesting because I'm, I'm looking over at a note that I had written long ago when we were interviewing Kim John Payne. And um, I have the words doodled on my page. It says Sibanu and Nihona, which means I see you, so now I am here. And the idea here is we exist in the presence of the other. Yes. You know, what that makes me think of, too, is that the power of stories exist when we sit down to see them. And depending on which myth we choose and with which one comes to light for us at any certain time, it doesn't make it more or less true than any others. It's just the one that we choose to see that's going to shine through us. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of another quote of, I cannot be without your within. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, swoon. <laughs> I'm going to wrap myself around in that one. Make that an infinity scarf. I want that looped around my neck. So, Tam, I would love to hear more about what kind of stories and archetypes are speaking to you right now. One of the biggest, and this is no surprise, is the one that I did a masterclass on last month with Lilith um, because she represents kind of the woman that has been cut off. She was in, you know, take a plethora of her mythology, but she was kind of kicked out of the garden because she wouldn't submit. And so once again, not enough and (laughs) yet too much at the same time. And since then, she's been associated with um, women being overly feminist or promiscuous or stubborn or, and I just felt all of her you know, rage and fire and pride and coming back and saying it wasn't meant to hurt. Hers, 
I, the way that I look at her, her not submitting to Adam and the establishment and the rules and the patriarchy was, and I'm speaking for an archetype, so that feels really weird. But <laughs> to me, it was her saying, I want to be equal in this dance. I cannot give to you fully if I can't receive fully and vice versa. If you subjugate me, you miss the magic. If you sub, say that again. If, if you subjugate you me, you miss out on my magic. There's no invitation there. If a woman looks at herself as being beneath anyone, anything, then she's not able to give fully. You know, I, I almost want to take out gender roles here and just talk about people because I think th th there's so much fluidity here that there mm -hmm. are certainly men who come in in the subjugated space and there are women who come in in this place of wanting to take. Um, we're certainly in our world today seeing it play out with, with these kind of gender norms um, in a lot of ways, politically and otherwise. Sure. Um, but I, I just also, I guess, want to hold a space for, for the misfits that you talk about. Yes. <laughs> I love my misfits. I kind of identify as like a purple sheep, not a black sheep, because a lot of us weren't kicked out of the tribe. I haven't been kicked out of the tribe. We just feel misunderstood, you know? And so what do you do when you're a therapist who wants to talk about spirituality and sexuality? So you're so right, Rebecca. It's not just about gender roles. It's about any sort sense of feeling othered. It, what's great about, I'm, I'm just going to go there. What's great about our relationship is that we play out all of these things that we're also playing out in our relationships. And then we work it through with each other and we go back and we're like, well, I figured this out. I can do this relationship in my other part of my life better. <laughs> yes. I think that's why we have spiritual partnerships with people that aren't necessarily our business partners or even lovers. It's just whatever context is because we do get to work it out and then bring it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I think it brings up, you know, this is certainly a push-pull that I experienced. You know, I came up and, you know, graduated from college in 2001 when it was, there was a kind of third wave, wave of feminism was huge. And Ani DeFranco concerts were, you know, the breath of life. Mm -hmm. And there was that. By the way, you know she's coming to the Hudson Valley Yay. in October. I'll make plans. I'm starting yeah. a penny jar. Okay. <laughs> okay. Another news. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, there was such that tremendous power and reclaiming that came through that. And then in the intervening 15 or so years, I've had such a dance myself of going down, like my feminism is about gathering in women's circles and bringing us together and speaking with lots of she's, you know, sentences. And then the other side of me says, no, really, it's about getting to that space of of equality and getting beyond gender and all these kind of binaries we may have created. And then I go back to say, no, there's a feminine way of knowing and we need to all tap into that. And <laughs> then there's the like, well, women need to do their work and men need to do theirs. And we're going to respect each other along the path. Um, and then there's this other side that isn't being spoken. And I so want to hold space for, well, if the, the ideological, like if, if women led, Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's this like we live in such a world of dominion mm -hmm. that women try to have that over each other. There's there's these power struggles. I mean, women have trouble holding each other up. Yes. All the time. You're yeah. right. We do. And so that takes me back to that dance of if I 
own all of me, if I give myself that invitation to sensuality and integration of all levels of being in my unique purple sheep way, which everyone technically is, then I am so grounded in my authenticity that there is no need to react. I come from a space of responsibility rather than a reactivity. Yes, and sovereignty. And sovereignty, love that word, the sovereignty goddess, yes. Which means then that I can celebrate all of the other people who even do the exact same thing that I do because there's enough for all. And there's I give of my gifts in this great hall of life and then you give of your gifts and I taste from you what I need and you taste from me what you need and everyone gets to hold their head high. Hmm. It changes the story. It does. And there are many paths to Rome. I think that's what a recent guest of ours said, that we're all going to be taking our different ways to get there and that there's different invitations that make sense at different times. And some of them are going to be saying, we're creating this community here for women. Some of them will be saying, we're creating this community here that's talking about the divine feminine and is open to all. Mm-hmm. And there's other times when we're not even getting into those masculine feminine words but maybe holding ourselves in that dance in a different way Mm. connection yet individuation that's beautiful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i i have another question for you because i know you're also doing some work with mary magdalene right now and she has a deep and special place in my heart and i think this is going to air after you lead your next master class but i would love just a little peek into that work and what that means to you Mary Magdalene is actually very special to my heart as well, because she was a woman who, for me, was in my particular worldview, I grew up Assemblies of God. So she was definitely heralded as the penitent, the woman for whom, you know, seven demons had been cast out. So here comes the Christ and he's healed her. And now she's the penitent, grateful one. Um, and noticing how in the Middle Ages, she her story got so convoluted into she was supposedly also the woman who cried upon Christ's feet. And she could have also been Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so all of a sudden, in one breath, she became more varied. And there were more ways of looking at her. And at the same time, more almost vilified in a way. So in my upbringing, she was kind of heralded as this version of the meek woman, which I was never able to identify with. I did not know what it meant to be meek. And I remember crying and journaling and writing Bible verse after Bible verse. because That's what we did back then and trying to learn how to be meek in the same way that my sister just more naturally is. And I just, I never really got there. And so the archetype of Mary Magdalene now for me is very similar to the the Lilith, this is why archetypal work is so powerful, was connecting with her her true story. And also, because this is my lens, of being misunderstood and being able to hold her head high regardless. It didn't matter what lens people put on her as an archetype. She knew her own truth. 
And that's where the power was. That's where the power lies. And when a woman truly knows her truth and does not need other people to agree with her, that's when she's able to be soft. That's when she's for whatever that looks like for her, right? So there's, to me, she now represents, there's no one right way of being the divine feminine, of being the meek one. And there's that sense of the more you own your own self, your own truth, you can stand in who you are, the more you're able to open and embrace others. Yes, because I'm not having to push back. I don't have to puzzle for my worthiness in my story. Right. And so who cares at this point if she was the woman that cried upon Christ's feet? Which, by the way, that song, um, Alabaster Box by C.C. Winans. Okay, well, y'all gonna have to look that up. Because (laughs) if that if she is still if that is supposedly Mary Magdalene, there's this phrase in that song, where she kind of rises up against the Pharisees, um, right? Because in that song, she's like the adulterer, the adulterous woman. And she looks at them and she goes, you don't know, you weren't there. When this happened to me, like you, how dare you judge me? And how dare you judge the love that I'm now pouring out from that divine feminine space? You don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box, meaning you don't know what I've had to walk through to get here. Yes. Mm. Well, you know, I just had to add this into the mix that one of my favorite books of all times was written by Elizabeth Cunningham. And actually, we quoted her in a previous episode. But she wrote a book called, um, a series of books, The Magdalene Chronicles, or The Maeve Chronicles, because what if Mary Magdalene was actually a red-haired Celtic warrior woman? Ooh. And amazing. You have a thing for red-headed women. Yeah, I do. It's true. I was talking about <laughs> Joe, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have um, red hair, but there's something fiery about that, you know? Yeah. Magical. It's a state of mind as much as it's a follicle issue. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to go into this knowing, you know, I, I don't, knowing, yeah, (laughs) I want to go into knowing and I don't know. Um, (laughs) I, I didn't grow up with, with the same stories. And so a lot of the stories and the archetypes that I'm, I'm hearing the two of you speak about are unknown to me. Sure. Um, I mean, they're not totally unknown, but the depth of them is not necessarily something that I can sink my teeth into and fully understand. And yet, as I'm, as I'm listening to the two of you in conversation around this, I'm, I'm also thinking about just what it is to know oneself, what it is to know one's truth, what it is to soften into this receptivity and to be able to be all of you. Um, and those are certainly themes that I've explored in my work that... Um, I've gone into retreat and held retreats around. These are these are certainly things that in my work I'm I'm often looking for and in my life I'm I'm always dancing with. And so I, I think that this is a really universal theme for many of us, male or female. I, I know in my practice, many of the men in the couples that come to me are searching to know themselves in this way. I don't think it's a one or it's an either or. I think it's it's both that we're all looking to, to know ourselves, to, to be able to see all of us, to not have to put parts of us away. Absolutely. I think it's a deep craving that mankind as a whole has 
to have this sense of connection to our authentic core. And so the way that I look at it now as a therapist and spiritual empowerment coach is it's, it's a revealing. It's more of, you know, the Buddhist concept of kind of like peeling back the layers of the lotus to, re- to see the gem within. It's a reawakening. To- I love how you use the lotus there instead of the onion. Yeah, no, I, I much prefer lotus. It's actually one of my favorite euphemisms for vagina too, but that's beside the point. I'm borrowing that on many levels. Yes. I, I will credit you as appropriate. Thank you. I call it my blossom in public if people, you know, we're around mixed company. Yeah. So revealing, revealing, peeling back the lotus and feeling that connection to self. It's only from that space. When we strip off the projections and the expectations and both self-imposed and from other people that we're able to stay in that dance with anyone. Yeah. And, and so this is, I mean, you're, you're hitting right into mm-hmm. the the place where my work is is grounded. This is what I believe connectfulness is. I believe that in order to be in connection with others, we have to be in connection with ourselves, with the world that we live in. We have to experience and sense all these pieces of ourselves, including the ones that we leave in the shadows. So good. <laughs> so good. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite modalities to work with is from the internal family systems perspective, because I feel like it provides clients a really practical way of tapping back into that higher self, whatever they want to call that, the orchestra conductor behind all of the other different sides of them that come forth during a day. And so I will often ask clients to tap into their feelings and, and notice, like, describe who's at the control panel right now. And what does that part of you want as a way of relearning what's authentic to them and what's not? Because we often get so caught up in vilifying our emotions, bringing it back to what we talked about at the top of the hour, that we don't even realize we don't know how to unblend from it. So when I will walk around and we'll say, I'm jealous. But is that true? No, just a part of you is having a conditioned response. Whatever it is that is Marisa or Rebecca or Tamara is not our thoughts or our emotions. You know, that running monkey in the brain. It's like on crack or methed out at times. We can't get it to sit down and shut up. It's, it's that purest essence, source, whatever you want to label it as. And I think that's what we're all craving is to feel that throughout the day and to operate, make decisions from that space. In a place of us right back to our <laughs> craving for the divine, right? Because yes. I think in what, as you just described that, that internal personal essence, that's what we're seeking and looking for both outside and within ourselves and the places those reflections happen. And mm-hmm. to be able to achieve that in a place of non-judgment, that's, I think, a big part of the searching too. Like that's, um, I'm laughing about words in the sense of like, oh, achieve. I don't want to achieve spirituality. And I'm like, oh, wait, non-judgment. <laughs> well, it really, to me, embodies Rumi's poem, out beyond the ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. And my Tam's prayer phrase is, that's where I want to meet you. Without judgment. Right. Without word mincing, as I just did to do Rebecca. I just shut down. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I know you didn't mean to. And I'm, I'm sitting with that with myself. And, and there's a just, way in which playfulness yeah. can backfire. Yeah. Right? Well, so, so Tam, go ahead and counsel us through this a little bit, because we just had a moment, a real live human moment <laughs> here. And I think this is a beautiful moment for our listeners because they're having these moments in their lives too. 
Right. When we latch onto something and then realize, oh shit, I'm doing it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold us. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so I think it's a two-step process. We in IFS, we unblend, meaning I realize that part of Marisa was really excited about achievement right then. And part of her was like, wait, nope, still really love the, you know, authentic spirituality. It does not require achieving anything. And <laughs> I would argue that her higher self, her third self, or, you know, the third space um, holds room for both. And it's the duality that is really, in my experience of Marisa, authentic to her. Totally. We're always talking about both ends. Mm-hmm. And so we unblend and then we unburden. And so the part of her that instantly started judging it, that's where I would ask a client to give that side a gift. What was that part of you really wanting in that moment? Because from this point of view, no matter what we're doing throughout the day, it's highly logical. It's just not helpful. And this explains even the most pathological of behaviors like suicidality even. It's the brain's attempt to get creative and offer a viable solution to pain in that moment. It just may not be the most helpful when you can pull back from that part and sit with it in a space of non-judgment and be like, what were you trying to help me with? And how can I partner with you? I know it's trippy because you're talking to yourself, but girl, you're doing it all day anyway, so you might as well make it work for you. What were you really wanting to help me with and how can I partner with you on it? And so I noticed that my particular flavorings of this shows up in judgy, manager-driven style parts. I get what I was joking about earlier about being like OCPD. I don't have that diagnosis, but if I'm anxious, that's where I start to come across really overly stringent about stuff I wouldn't normally care about. And so when I can pull back from her and be like, oh, I see you're trying to help me show up and look excellent or like, I know what I'm talking about. Well, how can I partner with you to do that better? Mm. That's beautiful. And I'm, I'm getting swept into there. Also thinking about just this, this human condition that we're all so much a part of. Mm hmm this need to try to explain away or escape from pain. Right. When try to do it right. Yeah, yeah. Do pain right. How ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be human and have an experience, but I don't want to be too messy and just sidetrack everybody. We have stuff to get done today and I'm a mom. Okay, let's do pain right. And have fun with it. Oh, have fun. And be playful. <laughs> Absolutely. And at the end of the day, feel erotically, ravishingly ready to have sex. Yeah, um, we tell ourselves we're supposed to feel <laughs> that is the burden the of the of all of us. <laughs> yes. And giving ourselves this brings me back around to being able to dance with that invitation. I give myself now an invitation to want to show up as the you know, expert in the room as a therapist that can help people with their pain. And I give myself an invitation to want to show up sex sexually at the end of the day with my partner or to not want to, <laughs> right? To be able to be tired, to hold space for uh, myself on those days where the kids were acting hella crazy right before I had to walk into session. Well, to invite yourself the space to the, the white space, to the, to the not having to care for others because so often one of the things that I, that I see is especially women who are caring for children all day at the end of the day, 
they might not want to make love with their husband. And it's not because they don't want their husband. It's because they've been in a caregiver role all day. And if they have to do anything more for anybody else outside of themselves, they're caregiving again. Bingo. (laughs) However, she might be willing to be talked into it if she didn't feel like she had to perform. Mm -hmm. So giving herself potential space. That again, that comes with that, with inviting her into a different space where she's not caregiving, where it's not about her performance. It's some, you're inviting her somewhere else. You took the words right out of my mouth, gorgeous. Mm. You know, I wanted to come back to this other thought that I had a second ago, as we were talking about that invitation or wanting to invite yourself or someone else to show up. That made me reflect on the title of our podcast, The Practice of Being Seen. And I wanted to dive in with you and just ask you to explore that with us. What does that mean to you? What does being seen mean? What does the practice of being seen mean to you? It takes me back to that non-judgmental space. I think the most beautiful gift that therapists give clients an emotional experience in is being able to show up in whatever state of being they are. So there's that first word from a being. They are able to come in on the heels of drama or trauma or even on a good day and have a sacred container to have that mirrored back to them and be able to process and dive into it and see what's authentic, what not, what's not, what stays, what goes. And to be celebrated for all of their beautiful variations, all of the parts of themselves, and then take that out and be able to invite others into that space with them to be seen, to show up and be seen. Which brings me back to my experience walking down the halls of Walmart and looking people in the eye. And that was a quick moment of, I see you. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, wish you well today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the trajectory. I even noticed that shift in myself when people would meet my eye back and would smile at me. And I thought, this is it. This right here. I know it's small, but this is what we're all craving all day, every day. I have the ability to take up space and you not only see me, but you like it. It's funny, you know, I think in in many ways we can invite those spaces to happen in life all around us, everywhere we go, like at Walmart. Mm -hmm. And then in other places in our lives, we think they only exist in certain places. They only Mm -hmm. exist within special communities. They only exist within our families. We have to go somewhere special to have that experience as opposed to, I can invite that experience with a shift within me. Places where I can be sacred, places where I can be human, places I can be whole. I'm so glad you said that because that brings me back to recognizing the practicality of magic in every single moment. And so I had this profound internal shift a couple months ago where I recognized that at any point in time throughout my day with nobody else around, I can have this experience that's hard to put words into where I start to notice the energy around me, like the universe, the divine At any point in time, you can be seen by whatever it is that is your connection to spirituality. And it's almost like floating in a float tank where suddenly you can feel this, what the book of Hebrews would call so great a cloud of witnesses around you. Maybe it's your ancestors. Maybe it's angels. Maybe it's the divine itself. But you're being seen right there. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most juicy moments of being seen that I could ever describe. And it's available with every breath. 
what if we open ourselves up to that radical concept? The float tank is just the oxygen entering our lungs. It's interesting because I also experience that cloud of witness. When I experience it, when I'm in that state of flow and, and am receptive to it and inviting of it, I also experience it as guidance. Yes. And being held. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and being held. I love that you said guidance, Rebecca, because whenever I get stuck now, maybe it is trying to put words to paper and copy and how do I describe what it is as what I do and why people should come want to have conversations with me. That's the perfect time to take a deep breath and to Mm -hmm. breathe in that cloud of witnesses and just ask. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you were talking about this cloud of witnesses and, and we were talking about being able to receive that guidance and invite that flow, I was also thinking, Marisa, about the retreat that we're offering this August at Menla Mountain and how that really describes the space that we're creating in a way that words have trouble describing it. Yes, and I think that, that even that dance between you know, the ineffable and the things we're trying to describe is part of what we're offering there mm-hmm. because it's those silences. It's those making motions with your hands and those inarticulate noises before you get to this phrase, this feeling that mm-hmm. I can express to you. So thank you, Tam, for taking us there too. Thank you for allowing me to give you an invitation to my dance. Mm, I love dancing with you. Yeah. I hope to dance with you again soon. I would love that. (laughs) Tam, how can our listeners get a hold of you? I'm certainly available on my private practice website at Aria Therapy. It's A-R-Y-A, which is Sanskrit for not ordinary. I love words. (laughs) Um, And I'm also available on talesfromatrapezoid.com where I work with other purple sheep who feel like trapezoids in a world full of circles. And both of those have Facebook pages as well. And then there's certainly the podcast, which is called Undressing the Spirit, which is all about literally peeling back the layers of that lotus, undressing that spirit and taking off the projections and getting real there. So I would love to interact with anybody on any of those spaces. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to interact with you and to to share space. Thank you. One of the things I loved about our conversation with Tam today was how we dove into those places of what it means to really know yourself and to not have to put certain parts of yourself away. You know, that when you start really revealing those layers, that's how you can really be in connection with yourself and with others. We're all craving connection. And in order to unblend those those burdened parts of ourselves, what we really need is to notice how we feel. And the Medify app helps you do just that. The Medify app is um, a self-awareness app that's created by therapists. It's available for free on both Android and Apple devices. And so within the Medify app, there are three different things that you can start with. You can start by naming your primary and secondary emotions. You can start by locating where in your body you are experiencing and sensing those feelings, or you can just start logging by um, starting to kind of organize and connect all the different experiences that you are having. 
and you kind of go through the motions of putting all three of these pieces together and it really starts to help you build that awareness and come back into all those layers, into revealing those different parts of yourself, into really starting to see that there are parts of you you don't have to put away. And that is going to help you get into better connection. So check out the Medify app. Again, it's available for free on both Android and Apple devices. And speaking of getting into connection, if you are a therapist or a healer, we want to invite you to our revision retreat this summer at Menla Mountain, August 13th to 16th. We're going to be coming together with a small group. And this is really a chance to pause and to root in, root into nature and to yourself. It's a really experiential retreat. And we are, we're just going to be taking so much care of you. We're going to be doing so many different things. So if you have like a theory or a venture, some kind of offering that the world doesn't know about yet, this is your time to dig in and sort it through a little bit. You know, we're often really scared of showing these parts of ourselves to the world. This is your chance to kind of sense it, dance with it, be held in a community of others who get it and also dive into some pretty radical self-care. So check it out. It's at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. And if you've enjoyed the show, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show and share it with everybody that you can think of. Music written and performed by Christopher Farris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.